I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi. Hello. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the 90s and 2000s. I am one of your hosts, Emily Bajan. And I am your other host, Margot Poupard. If you ever did theater, choir, or your best grades were always in English class, today's episode may just be for you. Today, we get to talk about Baz Luhrmann's iconic films, Romeo and Juliet, styled as such with a plus sign because it's the 90s, duh, and Moulin Rouge with an exclamation point because we are very excited about rape attempts and people dying of tuberculosis. <laughs> it's an exciting time. It's an ex- turn of the century, baby. <laughs> That's really funny. I never... I never put together the syntax in the titles of both of those. That's so interesting because Strictly Ballroom doesn't have anything. And I know they're all part of this like Red Shoe Diary trilogy or whatever it's called. (laughs) I believe you're talking about the Red Curtain trilogy. (laughs) (laughs) See, you still got it, though. (laughs) Have you seen you've obviously seen both of these, I'm assuming. Oh, Romeo and Juliet is fresh on my mind. as I literally just watched it today (laughs) earlier. Um. I I loved it then, and I actually really couldn't tell you up until today, the last time I had rewatched it, probably at some point in film school to win an argument about its uh, merits as a film, which we both have said is like definitely bordering on art. It feels really strong to say that because I feel like I don't want it to get back to Baz Luhrmann and like make him think that, yes, everything needs to be so overstuffed as we're probably going to talk about a little bit. But Roman and Juliet holds up incredibly well. So well. I, that was the movie. I know everybody fell in love with Leonardo DiCaprio during Titanic, but I fell in love with him in Romeo and Juliet. And he's so romantic in this movie. It really is. It's such like a horny Catholic movie. Oh, my but, God. But also super <laughs> duper gay. And I think that this movie also gave me false 
very false hopes about what reading Shakespeare in high school would be like. Because I yes. remember because of this movie and also all of the episodes around reading Romeo and Juliet in high school in ninth grade, when we finally read Romeo and Juliet, I was like, all right, here it comes. Definitely going to like kiss my crush while <laughs> While we read Romeo and Juliet, like, and for some reason, English class would also be taking place on a stage. It was in a really depressing, poorly lit bungalow that was like also sharing space with the student parking lot. But I was like, all right, got to pick my crush in this class because we're like fully going to make it out. And we just popcorn read the whole fucking play. Oh, of course. And I believe that was when I soured on Willie Shakespeare because I was like, fuck this text. Fuck this. fuck this fucking stupid star-crossed lovers bullshit i mean i am not and everybody knows i am not a fan of shakespeare i had to reread a midsummer night's dream for a raunchy essay contest and i like really struggled through it i was like i hate the way everybody speaks to each other and even in this movie i'm like the where to for and everybody's calling each other thou i'm like i feel a little insane I uh, So I'm your complete opposite. I love Shakespeare. That being said, I think Romeo and Juliet is one of the most overrated Shakespeare plays. Of I, course. I think there are far better ones. I love Much Ado About Nothing. I Much Ado About Nothing. I, there are so many others that I find so much better. But I think you're right. This is ultimately one of the best adaptations of Shakespeare on the screen. I also think it's one of the best modern day takes because I was really taken aback in rewatching it, how modern it felt even now. Like I know it's supposed to take place in the 90s, but it really, especially in the light of all of like the reboots that we've rewatched recently or all the remakes and how stale and like by the numbers it feels and how like I mean, it was ahead of its time when it came out in 96, but it still holds up now and really feels like fresh and of today. And I'm so, I don't know. So it really makes sense, like, why this is like such a star making turn for almost everybody involved and completely launches Baz Luhrmann's career because it's just such a well made movie and it's Mm -hmm. not trying very hard. It honestly Mm -hmm. reminds me of when I saw the Hall and Oates adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, where like it makes Shakespeare kind of like fun and approachable and like I think the only other Shakespeare adaptation for teens that I can think of that's even as good as Romeo and Juliet is Othello but what Romeo and Juliet has going for it that oh doesn't is that they keep all of the same language but the way that every actor delivers their interpretation of Shakespeare lines is so different but it doesn't feel like you don't see it it doesn't like scream in your face like oh god like that's a bad performance it's everybody's interpretation is so interesting and completely watchable that you kind of like it's the only instance where I can actually feel like the Shakespeare wording kind of wash over me and not be offended by it or annoyed by it I would agree and I think the interesting thing you just brought up is like a word-for-word remake versus like other Mm -hmm. adaptations because you know when we're talking adaptation right well there's like there's I mean there are other modern retellings of these so like around that time we'll get 10 things I hate about you later you'll get she's the man in the mid-2000s like all of those are Shakespeare retellings but they don't use original text they've you know changed some of the plot points in some cases they've even changed names Mm -hmm. or they've abbreviated names but for you know text using the actual text 
this one does such a good t- job. And I think at the time it was so visionary and different and out, you know, hadn't been seen in that way before. And I think that's why it ages so well. Um, and I will say another thing that works in this, in this instance is at a time in the nineties where we've talked about this a lot, you have a lot of casting of strictly white casts. And while the leads in this movie are both white, you have people of color cast in some of mm-hmm. the other roles which you didn't necessarily see in a lot of the other films that were being targeted towards teenagers or young adults at the time. I would also say it does a very good job of not calling it out. Like I feel like nobody like questions why or like how John Linguizamo and Gwyneth Paltrow's dad are, or I'm sorry, not, Oh, Mira Sorvino, Paul Sorvino. Yes. Thank you. Mira Sorvino's yes. dad. Got them confused for a hot second there that they're related. Like nobody yes. questions that. I feel like yeah. the whole, again, this kind of goes back to like everybody's delivery or interpretation of the material kind of being different, but also still of a piece. And I think a lot of it, and I'll talk about it a little bit, and I'm sure you'll talk about it with Moulin Rouge in a second too, yeah. is that I think a lot of that kind of comes down to these I'm, some actors find it to be annoying, but these like very intense workshops that Baz Luhrmann puts his 100%. all of his actors through because that's where they develop all of their chemistry. It's yes. where they kind of develop their natural mannerisms. And I yes. think, you know, to answer your question about Moulin Rouge, I mean, I really wanted to see this movie. I saw it in theaters. I loved it. Just like I loved it just as much as Romeo and Juliet. But I would say, in terms of go back to the well or like holds a soft spot in my heart. Romeo and Juliet is definitely that and Moulin Rouge kind of unfortunately over time. Yes. There's pieces of it that I love, like certain numbers, like the diamonds, like when Satine is introduced, I think that's really great. Yeah. I think like the first 20 minutes are like confusing at best. And it's, it's honestly like the worst parts of the best parts of Romeo and Juliet, like the fast cutting and the sort of like you feel really Im- immersed into this world. But it's like, a drug. It's almost- it feels like a drug yes. trip at times. Yes. yes. But not like in a fun way, probably because I was like, I did not consent. But yeah. I loved Moulin Rouge. And I'm sure you'll touch on this. But like it took over my high school like it was a fucking yes. episode of Glee. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yes. And that'll come up a lot in my notes. Um, I think you're absolutely right. It's just like, while we can I can come back and revisit it and be like, you know what? I shit on this movie sometimes, but really my shitting on it comes not from disliking it. It's a good movie. What I don't like is how annoyed I was at the time because everybody had the soundtrack or insisted we watch it during a sleepover or hangout. Like it was just everywhere. It was a wildfire. It was was really, it was an event. And I really feel like how how popular it was really influenced it being nominated. Like, I don't think that the Academy would necessarily give this a second look, especially when it was pitched. Everybody was like, who the fuck like makes jukebox musicals anymore? Like that's stupid. Like grow up as Lerman. But once again, he was right. He was right. He, he he led the charge on a new kind of renaissance of jukebox music. Yeah. Thanks a lot for Rock of Ages, but I would I would say that um, the only the biggest difference I think between for me Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge is that Moulin Rouge does feel long at times, and yes. I know it's because of like some of it's like the rapey stuff where you're like ay ay ay, but some of it I think that it belabors the point, and that's where some of like the romanticism between her and Christian kind of like for me gets lost. Whereas maybe it's because Romeo and Juliet takes place essentially within forty eight hours at best that yes. they like meet, hook up, marry, 
bone is banished <laughs> like it's like all yeah yeah and then die and maybe i'll give it a good 72 you know maybe a, like a long weekend yeah but maybe it's because of that that the romance feels more urgent whereas i feel like there's a lot of like planting seeds but in some ways they have some similar themes where like you know satine has to marry like a creep and Juliet yeah. has to, I mean, married Paul Rudd. Not that bad. Not but, that bad. But age difference wise, a little, a little bit. Uh, it's so not, much worse in the, in the play when you know she's 13, whereas 13. like Claire Danes does look 17 and you're like, yeah. okay, like that's kind okay. of uncomfortable, but you know, yeah, at I'll least go, you're I'll, 13. <laughs> I'll allow it. I'll allow it. Um, you brought up earlier something that's important to talk about. It's, it's Boz Lerman in terms of the workshopping that he does. That is very much tied to his theater background, which is like where it kind of he starts mm-hmm. and um, I have a little bio on on Baz Luhrmann, if I can, if if I may share. <laughs> oh, the floor, the ballroom floor is yours. Oh, thank you. I will I will step into it. Um, okay, <laughs> so I think I love Baz Luhrmann because he's basically a theater director who ended up directing films. Like this is really his thing, and where he he gets a start. His real name is actually Baz Mark Luhrmann. He just decided to shorten it as, as a teenager. Um, his mother was a ballroom dance teacher and a dress shop owner checks out and his father ran a gas station in a movie theater also checks out since there is a gas station scene in Romeo and Juliet. Mm -hmm. Um, he first gets to start acting in high school and later acts in a movie with Judy Davis in 1980, right after he had just graduated high school In 1982, from the money from his theater performances and his acting in films, he starts his own theater company, the Bond Theater Company, and features a lot of collaborators that will come up regularly in his uh, film productions, including Nellie Hooper and Gabrielle Mason. He would later attend the National Institute of Dramatic Arts in Sydney and met a lot of other people that he would go on to work with. He keeps a lot of the same folks. I mean, his co-writer, Craig Pierce, is the co-writer of almost all of his scripts. Uh, They collaborate all the time. He found a lot of success putting together theater and opera productions in Sydney. Many of those will later inspire the productions of these movies. And one of those was an original play called Strictly Ballroom, based on his own experience growing up in the ballroom world, learning ballroom dancing through his mom. It would later become a film of the same name, and it would begin what we call the Red Curtain Trilogy. (laughs) The two other films in that trilogy are going to be the ones that we talk about today, Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge. And that's all I have on Buzz Lerman, but figured I'd give you a little context. So I really can't believe that Romeo and Juliet is turning 25. Actually, it just turned 25 on November 1st when it came out in 1996, which... I really I I really should not have been watching this movie in like 1997 when right. it eventually made its way onto VHS. Right. I don't think I don't think teen suicide is like what I should be exposing myself to, but it was the very first time I laid eyes on Leonardo DiCaprio and I had a giant poster of him looking at Claire Danes, but really he's looking at me right uh, through the fish tank above, like above my bed for many, many years because of this movie. Hugely influential. It's crazy that this movie would go on to gross $151 million. It is the highest grossing Shakespeare adapt- film adaptation to date on a $14 million budget. And it solidified Baz Luhrmann as a quote unquote visionary director, Leonardo DiCaprio as a heartthrob and Claire Danes as a class A crier. 
part of Lerman's first look deal with 20th Century Fox after his success with Strictly Ballroom, he pitched them this adaptation of Romeo and Juliet as, quote, what Shakespeare would make if he were a director. Lerman says that he was really inspired by Bjork's Venus was a boy and Massive Attack, and he wrote his first treatment in Miami and was also inspired by the rave culture there and also abroad uh, in Australia at the time, which should really explain to you the masquerade ball scene. Fox gave him some money to do these workshops that he's famous for, which is basically like a lot of rehearsals and they shoot test footage. They also do a lot of costume run through and they they do whole scenes in different costumes to see how it feels and like what looks the best and what would the character choose. They shot all of this and did all of this in Australia in Sydney. Leonardo DiCaprio decided to pay his own way to fly to Sydney to be a part of it. And once Fox saw the footage of a fight scene, they agreed to fully fund it. All of the development was done in Australia with pre-production there and in Canada, as well as post-production back in Australia. Lerman and his co-writer, Craig Pierce, had to trim the play to fit a reasonable two-hour runtime. Their script largely preserves the original language. Guns rather than swords, though, are the weapons of choice. And like many props and costumes in the film, they all have a lot of Catholic iconography, whether it's somebody's handgun with a Virgin Mary or huge back tats of intricate crosses. The Montagues and the Capulets are also reimagined as warring mafia empires with legitimate business fronts in a contemporary American setting. The Montague gang favors the unbuttoned tropical shirts while the Capulet guys are dressed like urban cowboys in Cuban-heeled boots. (laughs) Friar Lawrence becomes Father Lawrence and Priest Escalius is rewritten as the chief of police of Verona Beach. The adaptation also eliminates the character of Friar John and some other characters change families around. But more or less, it is a pretty word for word retelling of the stage play. Lerman and his production slash costume designer slash wife, Catherine Martin, re-envisioned the play's Verona setting in Mexico City and in Veracruz. And they actually incorporated a lot of real life locations like Mexico City's Heart of Mary Church. And also some of the movie was shot in Miami as well. The Capulet Mansion was the Chapultec Castle, while the ballroom was built on one of the stages at the Churu Busco Studios. Um, I went to the Chapultec Castle, and now I know why it had a vaguely familiar feeling. A lot of better, more interesting stories obviously have to do with Harold Perrineau's interpretation of Mercutio, who was queer and possibly in love with Romeo in a hyper-masculine world. From dressing up in drag at the Masquerade Ball, Perrineau's Perrineau was inspired by drag culture, and it was his idea to basically be, as he put it, the grandson of Sylvester. I love it. (laughs) The other is when they shot Mercutio's big death scene, there was literally a storm brewing, and they were only able to get the wide shot of him dying in the sand one time before the sandstorm made it too difficult to see anything, and they had to later shoot pickups in San Francisco, like all of the close, all the close-ups. And a lot of Well, some of this information that I'm getting about the behind the scenes stuff, because there isn't a full retelling of the making of recently, Baz Luhrmann has taken to his Instagram to post, I mean, just a a truly a treasure trove of behind the scenes footage, Mm -hmm. uh, test footage, um, how they did certain shots, like how they shot the pool scene, how they shot like the wide of the pool in a pool in Miami. And then they shot all the close ups by like putting them in a dunk tank, essentially. And he shows he shows he doesn't like to show people how he creates a romantic scene. But you see sort of the entire team that kind of goes behind shooting a like spontaneous romantic moment. There's like 73 other dudes in the background and like Baz Luhrmann in a pool, like looking at a monitor. I mean, it's very interesting. 
And he kept saying on his Instagram that he was going to do this Q&A, this Q&A to answer all of our questions about any behind the scenes stuff that we wanted to know about Romeo and Juliet. And as of recording, which is the fourth today, I have yet to find this Q&A. It hasn't come up. But if you want to see really great behind the scenes photos and footage and explainers from him, I highly suggest you go to at Baz Lerman. So that's where I saw a bunch of photos from the Mercutio death scene. There's one of Leonardo DiCaprio on the beach and you can see the ocean behind him and the the tides are huge. Like you can see the waves, there are white caps everywhere. And I guess there was a pretty much a hurricane like an hour or two after they had broken down for the day. A small word on wardrobe. The team there, they don't like to do sketches, so they bring in a bunch of stuff while they're doing these workshops, and they try them all out and see what speaks best to the character, what's the most natural, and I tried to find some sort of interesting backstory about these tropical shirts, but the answer is, they were just cool, and they looked cool, and that's why they did it. (laughs) And before I hand it to you for casting, I have a little bit on the soundtrack. Basically, it's an iconic soundtrack. The whole thing from top to bottom still holds. I think it helps with the timelessness feel of the movie. And it was pretty much put together by Lerman, but also Neely Hooper. And he tapped Neely Hooper, Marius DeVray, and Craig Armstrong to do the score for the movie. And it was all their first score on a motion picture. And they've been working together ever since. And just a quick sampling of the soundtrack if you haven't listened to it for a long time. We have Garbage, Everclear. We have Desiree in that iconic Kissing You, which is the theme, like the love theme song for Romeo and Juliet, which the second it came on when they spot each other through the fish tank, straight up chills all over again. Oh my God. Then we have some good Radiohead. We have Kim Maisel, like a classic disco track. So if you haven't heard it in a while, it is streaming on Spotify. And I suggest you add it to your library if you like listening to good 90s music. This soundtrack is one of my absolute favorites. We love it so much that we did a blog post on it on our Medium page. Hashtag check out our Medium page. Um, <laughs> that, and I would say Local God might be my favorite, all-time favorite Everclear song. I, yes. Can I tell you how disappointed I was when I bought an Everclear album thinking it was going to be on there and it wasn't? And I was like, what the no, fuck? No, <laughs> no. Ah, classic. So I good. asked for it without checking the track listing or something and I got it. it was like so upset. But I mean, I got the soundtrack was like one of the first albums I got, but I thought it would be as part of like another Everclear album, but they just did it simply for the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack. It's so sad that it didn't make it to any of their albums, but great soundtrack. Um, It's great that you brought up his wife, Catherine Martin, who was the costume designer on this production she is actually in a cameo in this movie as one of um lady capulet juliet's mother's um costume like ladies in waiting if you will like there's a scene where she's putting on the cleopatra costume at the beginning she's talking to juliet and uh she has two women helping her and it was in fact because the costume was so hard to put on that they needed help and so they purposely kind of wrote these parts in for these two women to be like her assistants putting this costume on for her but it was in fact one of them was costume designer slash wife Catherine Martin which I thought was kind of cool one of the many things I've learned from this Boslerman Instagram retrospect on Romeo and Juliet from a casting perspective there isn't too much out there other than kind of like the speculation and like who people were kind of thinking about obviously Leo was the first cast and as you mentioned he kind of did a first 
look teaser footage thing in Australia where he paid his own way to get there. Um, Fox was so impressed with this footage that they greenlit the movie. And so now they had to cast a uh, Juliet. There was one bit of research of mine, and I think it was the IMDb facts that said Neil Patrick Harris was considered for Romeo, which I'm thinking like this is a few years after Doogie Hauser, obviously way before How I Met Your Mother and Harold and Kumar. Uh, I don't know if I could see it, but um, I have a real hard time seeing that happening. Yes. I don't know why, one especially cast opposite Claire Danes. Like it just looks too much like brother and sister. I'm very sorry. So there were a lot of people they looked at initially and considered for Juliet. So it includes Sarah Michelle Gellar, Jennifer Love Hewitt, Aaliyah, Kate Winslet and Christina Ricci. Geller at the time was still on All My Children, so commitment-wise, she could not do this production. Soap operas, as you all know, like have crazy filming schedules. The biggest contender out of all of these that would go on to be really seriously considered was Natalie Portman. So hmm. they did a few rehearsals, um, but they thought she looked way too young for the part. And it kind of was that she was, in fact, way too young for the part. She was like 14 or 15 at the time. Leo was 21. So obviously it was weird. And on top of that, this is right after she had done Leon the Professional, which already has a weird, creepy dynamic mm-hmm. anyway. So and like Nellie Portman, I've you know, I listened to an episode of Armchair Expert where she was interviewed and she talked a lot about how like her early roles were Leon the Professional and Beautiful Girls, all of which she plays kind of a 13, 14 year old girl or 12 year old who an older man is kind of obsessed with and has like an inappropriate relationship with. Even if nothing happens, it's just kind of weird, like in Beautiful Girls, for example. So for her, it was like you know, she kind of tried to get away from that um, after that. And when they did kind of some of the the footage where they kind of did some test screening with Portman and DiCaprio, it just like didn't look right, obviously, because of the sage difference. In terms of Claire Danes being cast, she ends up being the person they give the part to because they looked at all these women. um, But ultimately, Claire Danes was the best at this part. And then on top of that, she could really seriously look at Leonardo DiCaprio in the eyes without like going crazy or whatever. Like she just looked at him like a normal person, which uh, Lerman has talked about, like wasn't the case with a lot of the other women that they saw uh, for that role. Other people that were considered for some of the other roles for Mercutio before they went with Harold Perrineau, they had considered Ewan McGregor, Christian Bale, and and even John Leguizamo auditioned for the role. Obviously, Harold Perrineau is iconic. John Leguizamo as Tybalt is fantastic. They even looked, though, at one point at Benicio Del Toro for Tybalt, which I thought was interesting. And apparently mm, Sam yeah, Rockwell... I could see that for Benicio Del Toro. And then Sam Rockwell auditioned for Mercutio, which... I could see that actually checks out for me much more so than Ewan McGregor and Christian Bale. Yeah, um, they they are too methody to have enough fun with the role. Too methody. But and Benicio was- Del Toro, I guess, but he's not. He's kind of like hulking. I feel like Sam Rockwell and John Leguizamo are on the same page in terms yeah. of like they're like live little dudes who are funny. They would work. <laughs> both of them would have worked. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is like. Ewan McGregor will end up doing train spotting around the same time anyway, which just like works out perfectly. Mm -hmm. Um, But ultimately the casting, I think, ended up the way it should have ended up. Um, The final one that I thought was super interesting was that Marlon Brando had expressed interest in playing Father Lawrence, but he had 
Yeah. And this is kind of the later part of his life. I I think he only dies within like five years after this. He had personal stuff come up. So that took him out of doing this. And then obviously Boslerman will go with Pete Postlewaite, who I probably butchered his last name. He had worked with Lerman in the past on a production of Julius Caesar. Boslerman directed a lot of different productions of Shakespeare plays in Sydney prior to becoming a movie director. But that is kind of how everything I found on casting, really, there wasn't too much else. And honestly, this is one of those instances where I think everybody is just so well cast. And we we mentioned it earlier. It's kind of perfect. Even Jamie Kennedy, who really had quite a run there as like doofus number three or whatever, you know, yes. not necessarily like he was just in that role for so many movies. So, so interesting. Perfect. And Paul Rudd, like, Oh, and Jesse so Bradford. Good. I stood and up Jesse and Jesse Bradford. Swim at Balazar. Fan. Yeah, yes. I called I him Swim Fan because I could not remember his Swim name. <laughs> calling him Jesse Metcalf because I watched a Vanderpump last night where Jesse Metcalf was there. But um, yeah, I kept calling him Swim Fan. Swim Fan. I know. There are a lot of before they're big. So yeah, there's Jamie Kennedy. Paul Rudd's just off of Clueless, but not, you know, the Paul Rudd that we all know today. And and then, yeah, there's there's a uh, baby Jesse Bradford as Balthazar. I, I always forget that one. Ugh. I this feel is... like this. The movie is kind of like a wash in studs because I had totally I forgotten about Paul Rudd the until parent. like a couple years ago. Him and being it, which says a lot. And the parents are great. I mean, you've got Paul Sorvino mm-hmm. and Christina Pickles as the Montague parents. And I forget who plays Lady Capulet, but La- but Lord Capulet, or no, it's the Montagues are Brian Dennehy, who's another like, you know, did not forget that he's in this, but he's great in it. Um, and then Christina Pickles, who is the mom on Friends, very famously, she is uh, Monica. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Uh, and Ross's mom on Friends. And then obviously Paul Sorvino, who like I always see, you know, for me, it's like I always just see him as Polly in Goodfellas. So very interesting. I'm going to give this money and I'm going to walk away. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought uh, that um, Juliet's mother was Jessica Lang for about 45 minutes of the movie. Me but really, too. her name is like something Verona. 
It is. You're absolutely right. But I completely thought because she looks oh my God, so yeah. much like her. I was like, so oh, much. Was like, see, people so give much. I was like, people give Jessica Lang roles all the time who aren't named Ryan Murphy. But then I was wrong about who it was. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Her name, by the way, is Diane Ver- Venora. Very Venora. close. Dang it. Very close to Verona. Let's got confused. I was like, Verona, <laughs> whatever. I was like trying to make a connection here. So, yeah. All right. Great. Cool. I was like, how ironic. Her name starts with the V and that's where we are in time and space. The way that the movie opens and closes, though, I really like because it's just a TV set with a newscaster yes. talking about the war between the Capulets and the, the Montes. narrator, yeah. And, and it, but it's also like floating very far away. I don't know. I really appreciated the bookends of it. I totally forgotten that was even in the movie, but it's such a smart way. It's a smart way to, A, start the movie because it really gives you a sense of where you are in time and place. Like, it's a modern retelling without it having to tell you that. And then the yes. ending, I just thought was just a great way to tie it all nicely together. Well, and it takes the the role of the narrator in the, in the play, like the two houses, mm-hmm. both alike in Dignity and Fair Verona, where we lay our scene. Yes, I know that whole thing by heart. It's really embarrassing. But um, but just putting it, thinking, oh, modern day, obviously this would be a, a news story on the t- on TV. Like that makes absolutely perfect sense. It checks out. It makes this feel so natural in its adaptation that I think it's why, like you said, in 2021, 25 years later, we both see this as so relevant still versus other Shakespeare adaptations. I would still say O is the only other contender, but yes. other that, that does something interesting with it. Yes. Um, yes. And is also like, it captures how unsettled, I think it's even more unsettling than the play itself, which I think Othello is like maybe the only Shakespeare play I actually do enjoy. But um, I, I think it's, it's even more unsettling because it takes place in a high school and just how evil Josh Hartnett is in it. Yes. I don't know. I think it's the only other one that really works for me. Other than I would that. agree. That's a, the more direct retelling versus like a he's the man, which I fucking love. She's I the love man. Too. Sorry. Yeah. It's great. No, I, I mean, other than that, that's really all I have for casting at this point. You know, um, do we want to just get into Moulin Rouge? Let's walk further into the red light or whatever. <laughs> well, done. that really didn't work. Yeah. It, you know what? I'll let you have it though. I'll, I'll allow it. Thanks. I have to sit with this now. <laughs> if you were in an acapella group or a high school theater production at one point in the 2000s, you probably found yourself in the midst of a Moulin Rouge sing-along. <laughs> and if you're like me, you kind of get frustrated that people just expect you to know all the words to every song and love Moulin Rouge. I guess I technically know all the words because it's a jukebox musical so it's really just like woven together like six songs in each number i talk a lot about my love of musicals on this podcast but jukebox musicals are not really my cup of tea there are like two exceptions it's gonna be for me i was obsessed with across the universe between the ages of Uh, 19 uh. to 20 i know i was 19 all right Uh. you gotta so was I, Emily. I fucking I hated that movie. And I know. I just have I to know. tell you because I know it's going to make you upset and I'm sorry. I'm just going to rip the no, band-aid off. No, it's okay. But a friend told me once that the first time they had ever heard our song was in Moulin Rouge. And so they didn't know it was originally by Elton John. They're like, yeah. Oh, no. From Moulin Rouge. I'm like, like the version? They're like, no, that's like the only version. I was like, nope. No, that's, <laughs> that's not, not how that works. works. <laughs> that's not how that works. Um. <laughs> 
again, I don't really care for Across the Universe that much anymore. Like, it's just not one I would gravitate towards watching. But at one point in my life, I very much enjoyed it. And then number two, Mamma Mia and Mamma Mia, here we go and begin. (laughs) Because they're two wonderful plain movies. And I won't have anyone speak blasphemy here. Nothing like being thousands of feet up in the air, a few airplane drinks in, mouthing the lyrics to Voulez-vous while sporting leggings and swollen feet. Like, really bliss. If you don't like Mamma Mia, you're just jealous that Stellar Skateboard and Pierce Brosnan might not be your dad. Like, you just yeah. don't get it. You are okay? just, you just don't get it. You just don't get it. And I and why I feel sorry for you. Grease and be happy. Like, why are you so upset? How can you not like Mamma Mia? I mean, the pure moment, joy, pure joy. The moment when the when the evergreen boat was uh, freed up the Suez Canal and someone <laughs> decided to tweet a clip from Mamma Mia on a boat where everyone is dancing to Dancing Queen as <laughs> what the Suez Canal looked like at that point. I was overjoyed. <laughs> I never saw that. That's so stupid. Uh, this is not, unfortunately, a Mamma Mia podcast yet. No, not yet. Not yet. But we have seasons. <laughs> we have time. We have time. I don't hate Moulin Rouge. In fact, I really... <laughs> <laughs> Everything you just said, you, don't, you didn't mean any of that? <laughs> I don't hate it. But I realized, and I realized this even more so when I was doing the research, like, I actually find this movie is fine. And I can appreciate it for it. Like, it's fun. You know, it's enjoyable. It's fine. Raves Emily Bijan. <laughs> <laughs> Nicole Kidman is great in it. Ewan McGregor's great. John Luisiamo's great. Like, everybody is good in this movie. Jim Broadbent's great. Like, everybody yeah. is good. Um, but because it was so overplayed... I can never love it the way some of my friends do. And I like after this episode, if my friend Mark is listening, he's coming with us to Celine Dion next year. Oh, I don't he, want any questions about Moulin he, Rouge. I'm sorry. He's not going to speak to me after this episode airs, I think. Like he loves that movie and it's okay. I think it's fine. I just like, I think it's people ruined it. People <laughs> ruined it. People ruined it. It's fine. It's so upsetting. I know. I'll stop now. I agree. I do feel like I will never be as excited about this movie as I was the first time I watched it. Yes. And it's really unfortunate because the first time I watched it, it really is a spectacle to take in, but it's not something that rewards multiple watches. I would agree. I would agree. Like the first time you watch it, you're like, wow, this is really well done. Like, especially in a theater. Like, I feel like it's a great theater experience, which which fully gives you like theater goggles when you rewatch it later you're like we're all gonna be singing together and holding hands and like just some things don't translate outside of the theater like i get why directors have been so touchy about seeing their shit in the fucking theater because like please it's it's the only way it works and that would be my biggest takeaway and criticism of boz lerman is like romeo and juliet you can still watch fine on a you know regular screen or whatever but a lot of his productions in general that is why i said this earlier he's a theater director who just happened to become a film director Mm -hmm. it is best seen on a large screen where you can see the details you can really take in the colors you can take in the costumes like there's just it's like you're watching a theater production and so that's why i don't think it translates as well a lot of his movies to like a home video format like gatsby again not my favorite of the boz lerman movies but definitely a better movie Movie on the big screen than actually on a small screen. Um, um, that's I never watched it because I was like, this movie is ridiculous, <laughs> and I don't care. Um, I, yeah, I would say 
Romeo and Juliet, I think, is something that rewards multiple watches because I think there's a lot of fun Easter eggs Easter and eggs, just like yes. really great production design that you could really just like get into that too. And yes. the way it shot, again, it was like very ahead of its time. Yes. But Moulin Rouge is also cutting edge, but it is, I think it, it unfortunately suffers from the more is more um, yes. disease. <laughs> Yeah, no, I would agree. So this movie was released in 2001, stars Nicole Kidman and Ewan McGregor. It was slated to be released in Christmas of 2000, uh, but they had to delay it by five months to give Lerman a lot of extra time to do Lerman-esque post-production on it. And it shows, like, again, it has that Lerman touch. It was co-written by him and Craig Pierce, who we talked about earlier. And the inspiration from this movie comes from a whole lot of places. First of all, he put on a 1993 production of the Puccini opera La Boheme at the Sydney Opera House, and that was really a big inspiration for this film. Totally checks out, given that in both of the opera and in this movie, the female romantic lead has tuberculosis, although in La Boheme they call it consumption because it was the 1800s. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the musical Rent, which is another thing that people expect me to like, (laughs) and let me tell you, I like Rent, but I don't love it. I'm not going to be, you know, singing it with you at a bar when we're drunk. Like, it's just not going to happen for me. Is it? So anyway, I digress. But This episode is full <laughs> of triggers for you. It has been a lot. All right. This is a fucking landmine <laughs> of emotions. But, but Rent is a modern retelling of La Boheme. So that checks out. Like, there's a lot of similarities there of, like, tragedy and all that. Additionally, a lot of the Indian inspiration, like with the elephants and that kind of imagery in the film, come from his 1993 production, Midsummer Night's Dream Opera, that was written by Benjamin Britten, which I think actually, if Baz Luhrmann decides to revisit Shakespeare, I think a Midsummer Night's Dream would actually be a great product. Like he put on a great film adaptation of it just because of the nature of its subject matter. Anyway, he went to India to do research for that production, ended up seeing a lot of Bollywood films at a theater, and was amazed how, like, he's talked about this in interviews, how it was three and a half hour epic of these movies. And obviously these movies were in Hindi or another, you know, Indian language or dialect, yet he felt like he understood everything that was happening. And you kind of get that with Moulin Rouge. Like, even if you're not an English native English speaker and you watch this film, you would still be able to understand what is happening because of how grandiose the production is and how, like, you know, it is very much like theater and opera in some ways without it actually being people singing opera. Um, he... Also has a lot of parallels in this film with um, aesthetic wise with Strictly Ballroom and then par- the, the the tale or the plot actually parallels a lot of Orpheus and Eurydice um, where, you know, the thought of like Christian Ewan McGregor's character is kind of trying to take Satine, Nicole Kidman's character out of the underworld that she's in where she's enslaved to be with this Duke character. She is bound to this theater. She has to stay at the cabaret, the Moulin Rouge and perform like she is bound to this life that she doesn't always love. And he wants to take her out of it, ultimately being unable to do so. Spoiler alert. Obviously, there's a lot of this kind of disco drug vibe here, like where everything at times feels like a drug hallucination. Because Basler Mitz saw this, the Moulin Rouge to Paris, as the Studio 54 or the factory to New York. It was like the place to be if you're a revolutionary or creative. And as co-writer Craig Pierce said in this interview, it was a, a nightclub or disco before we even had terms for that. They projected Christian's kind of idea around 
love songs, which are actually, as we all know, just jukebox like amalgamations of various other popular songs. They try to make him seem ahead of his time as a musician or writer by putting all this mid to late 20th century music in an 1899 setting. But there's just a lot of inspiration from various places that comes up in this film. From a production standpoint, they began filming in November 1999, finished filming in May of 2000 with a budget of $50 million. It was filmed mostly in Sydney, but during the production, like Nicole Kidman, she broke her ribs twice when she was lifted in the air during the dance sequences. She also suffered from a torn knee cartilage during Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend and just like basically... <laughs> was also falling apart because she had to use a corset throughout the production to achieve like this 18 inch waist and that she kept she fell down the stairs while dancing in heels like it's just it was a mess and on top of that they overran their time on a production facility because uh star wars episode two had to come in and use that same studio so they had to leave the sound stage you guys should just no let mulan rouge film you don't need to make episode two i mean hayden 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 christian i was about to call him hayden panettiere hayden christians can mope wherever he doesn't need a soundstage well I know that you made this point earlier, but I it came to me in a flash when he said, like, Moulin Rouge is like a discotheque before they had those. And there is a photo of me in 2001 in front of the Moulin Rouge because I fully changed oh my, my family. That's how obsessed I was with that movie at the time. Oh my God, I remember. I think I made my parents take me there, too, because it was like, we had to go. I had both soundtracks. Like I'm, I only kept Romeo and Juliet. I think that's the only one that's made it through multiple moves. But I had both soundtracks for a very long time. <laughs> Inter- from a from a song selection standpoint, so I talked about this earlier. It's obviously a jukebox musical, but originally they wanted it to be an original musical. So they, while they were putting everything together, they'd focus on staff. So like scenes that are fundamental. They would think about the emotions for that scene, and then think think of a song or a set of songs that exemplify those emotions. So each of those scenes had like ten or twenty songs associated with them. As they're going through this process, they start to realize. This was their musical. They didn't need to write a bunch of original songs. They could bring in these existing songs, mash them up into what they became, and kind of make it so that the 1899 setting was still relatable to anybody watching it in 2001. Music supervisor Anton Munstead said in this like Entertainment Weekly retrospective, and I'm not going to keep quoting everything, but he says the film setting was a time of flourishing creativity. And Boz felt that the 1890s in Paris was the beginning of the 20th century as we know it culturally, and we were making a film at the very end of the 20th century. We felt like it was quite apt to use this opportunity to use the film as a lens through which to see and celebrate the great pop songs of the 20th century. Securing the rights to the songs was a two and a half year process. <laughs> and luckily, the hero of this all is Elton John, who really loved the idea of the film and really sung its praises and was just like, Boz Lerman, I'm going to give you, I'm going to work on getting you the rights to your song so that when you go with your team to talk to other management teams, you can tell them Elton John's on board. We've already got the rights to your song. So good on you, Elton John. He also wanted to incorporate, Lerman wanted to incorporate songs by the Rolling Stones and Cat Stevens. Uh, They said no to the musical, so he ended up using some replacements. But ultimately, this film, I mean, it did incredibly well. It ended up grossing nearly $200 million all over the world. The soundtrack has sold millions of copies, became a staple of all figure skating competitions and high school sing-alongs. 
that's all I have for behind the scenes. Well, the, I think maybe this is a a good thing about Baz Luhrmann. And I think it sort of speaks to why he continues to have a career, even though he's had some very expensive flops, like the one that's coming for him after Moulin Rouge. But, <laughs> but I think because he's such a steadfast and reliable person and very straightforward, like he, there is, there's nothing going on behind the scenes that other than, you know, a, months worth of rehearsal like I really can't believe I think that was the most shocking thing to me about the Moulin Rouge research was how fucking long Nicole Kidman was on this goddamn movie and it didn't seem like it bothered her it was just more like I I can't believe this movie took 153 days to fucking shoot like that's crazy Margo I just had a revelation was this her first yes Tom Cruise divorce oh good okay so to me for my end the most notable thing about Moulin Rouge is it marks the beginning of the Kidman renaissance post Tom Cruise divorce Nicole Kidman. So she goes from eyes wide shut straight to Moulin Rouge. In fact, Moulin wow. Rouge dominates so much of her life. She has to pull out of the panic room, that Judy Foster movie, but she's featured as a voice and an, un- an uncredited voice. She has to delay the birthday girl, which she will shoot directly after this. But the others comes out between Moulin Rouge and the birthday girl. But because the movie took so long to shoot. And then when she was done shooting, she had a broken rib. They pushed back the birthday girl like twice. Oh shit. Mm -hmm. But like most casting backstories, the best ones are the ones that could have been. And boy, does this movie have a lot of that. First of all, Heath Ledger almost played Christian, like so, so close. In fact, Ledger got so close to the role and participated in so many of the workshops that when he didn't get the part, he basically told Lerman to go fuck himself when he tried to work with Ledger again in Australia. (laughs) Ledger ultimately lost out on the role because Lerman thought he was too young for Kidman. She was 33 at the time and he was 21. Quote, and it turned out that they, Ledger and Kidman, did really work well together and it was quite beautiful, but Heath was just too young in the end. That's a quote from Baz Lerman himself. Also up for McGregor's role was Jake Gyllenhaal, who previously recalled how grueling the audition process was for the film. And it led to the beginnings of his friendship with Heath Ledger. To be fair, though, when Ledger turned down Australia, it was because of Brokeback Mountain. And that's how him and Jake Gyllenhaal actually met because they didn't meet during the audition process. But they did bond over how shitty and long it was when they were on Brokeback Mountain together. Chatty Gyllenhaal also revealed that they auditioned a shitload of Satines. Catherine Zeta-Jones, Kate Winslet, Hilary Swank, which would have been the wrongest choice of them all. Oh, yeah. Renee Zellweger. Which actually wouldn't be that bad. Drew Barrymore. Natalie. She does down with love, right? With Ewan McGregor, like right after this. Probably. I didn't look. I just, because of Judy. Did you see Judy? She was really good in that. She was very good in that. I mean, she won an Oscar. We're both like, look at her doing great. Look at her. (laughs) (laughs) So, sorry. Um, Renee, Drew Barrymore, Natalie Mendoza, Charlene Spittertree, who I don't know, and Sophie Ellis-Bexter. My favorite, though, is Courtney Love. She has gone mm. multiple times calling losing the role of Satine to Nicole Kidman as, quote, one of the biggest disappointments of her career. And she's made no secret that she actually resents Nicole Kidman over it. Lerman categorized the difference between the two of them in a Vanity Fair article saying, quote, Courtney is fire and Nicole is ice. This prompted Love to remark that Kidman was, quote, a puddle <laughs> and dedicate the song <laughs> Miss World, which is a song about self-loathing, uh, a self-loathing beauty queen, to Nicole Kidman on her 1999 tour with Hole. 
that. All of this is like, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fully. This, checks out. this is checks all out. Courtney Love, like just all of the check boxes next to, I, next to Courtney Love's name. And like her ill-fated Sid and Nancy auditions. Like this, like this checks out. This, this is a string out. of disappointments. Anyway, it seems like Lorman ended up giving her like a courtesy audition because they wanted to use smell like smells like teen spirit, which they do. Um, other possible Christians included Hugh Jackman, which makes sense. Jake Gyllenhaal, as I said, and Ronan Keating. Rowan Atkinson. <laughs> Mr. Magoo. Mr. Bean. <laughs> oh, sorry, Mr. Bean, not Mr. Magoo. Close enough, though. And Alan Cumming were almost to lose, which I thought was interesting. And John Linguizamo almost played the Argentinian. But I don't know how that shook apart, but that's how we all know how it ended up. Ewan McGregor eventually landed the role because Lerman was impressed by him in a play. And that's exactly how Nicole Kidman got an audition as well. As a matter of fact, Nicole Kidman had to audition twice, even though at the time she had a lot of star power and a decade of box office receipts. But it was their vocal performances in both of their stage plays that ultimately sold it. And that's all that I have on casting. Again, very straightforward. It's like once he made up his mind, he made up his mind. It was more of the people that auditioned like Catherine could you imagine like a Catherine Zeta Jones Jake Gyllenhaal Moulin Rouge I mean, like that's so odd one one they're both excellent theater performers so it's not that but rather yeah the two of them chemistry doesn't not seem all. right plus I'm happy it didn't work out with Catherine Zeta Jones because she would go on and Renee Zellweger would go on to do Chicago like the next year so like oh, they perfect. wouldn't have been available so like for them honestly I think in terms of the movie musical renaissance that happened because of this movie and then Chicago a year later, I think everything from a casting standpoint worked out. What I would like to see, though, is Hall in a movie musical at one point because he has been on Broadway quite a bit recently. I'm sure that's coming for him. I mean, he's too old to be in the West Side Story remake that's coming out, but something else <laughs> will come along. I, I can feel it. And so what have we learned about Baz Luhrmann at 25 years on? Because uh, turns 20 this year. It does, or, or yeah. Because it came it out did. when? It came out in June of right, 2001. We were, I remember that was like a post, like middle school graduation, like outing with a bunch of people. And maybe that's what yeah. also added to the specialness of seeing the movie. But yeah, so it just had its 20 years. Romeo and Juliet just had 25 are we I too mean, harsh on Baz Luhrmann? Should we, is he getting, is he going to get like an M night Shyamalan? Like people have now come around. Cause he has that Elvis movie that's coming out as well that I'm sort of interested in, but I'm so I don't know. Well. Did you ever watch the I, get down? Was that something you watched? You know, I started it and I always wanted to continue. I just had so many other things on my list mm -hmm. of shows to watch at the time that I didn't get back to it, but I remember genuinely liking it. Cause I think the thing with Baz Luhrmann is it's like, when he hits, he hits like well. Like it's yeah. really, really good stuff. And when he misses, it's honestly just, I think him having an idea in his head, being a visionary and not realizing execution wise why this may not work and why people may not be really interested uh, in entertaining the idea of seeing this, like looking at you, Australia. You know, like mm -hmm. it's just, I think that uh, I'm excited about this Elvis movie because it's not one of those, I feel like it's been a long time since. Elvis has been covered in a film like it's been at least I feel like the last one was I don't know like maybe like leaving Las eh, I don't know I'm trying to think when the last time there was an Elvis movie it's been a while so I think this 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 will be good I hope 
I'm not sure when it comes out, but time will tell. And I am curious to read when he puts out that Q&A that he's been threatening on Instagram. I would love to read that because I that was really kind of what was missing in my research was like, oh, I thought there'd be other stuff. But maybe it's all technical since he's just such a technical guy who really loves production design and just doing lots of rehearsals. Yeah, I think you're you're right. Do you have any final thoughts or things you've learned about uh, Baz Luhrmann during this this hard research? I guess I was just very struck by how well Romeo and Juliet held up. And I was just really impressed and like moved. And I just really enjoyed the rewatch of that. It was just a really fun experience. Um, and it, it in turn got me kind of excited to watch the Elvis movie and maybe even revisit other stuff. Not Australia. I don't have three hours. And if I do have three hours, I'm watching the new Bond movie. So give me a break. Yeah. But yeah. it might it, it kind of made me like rethink because I feel like, like you said, over time, Moulin Rouge kind of like did not age well. And that's sort of like the last big thing that I could remember. And Australia was just like such a flop. And it was just so not what anybody really wanted from him. So I, I and then you just didn't hear from him for a long time. And so I am very curious to see what this new and improved Baz Luhrmann is like. And it seems like he really enjoys all of like the love and attention that both of these movies are getting now that they're they've aged and people have had time and space away from them. And he even called out Casey Musgrave's performance on the VMAs yes. because it was very inspired by oh, yeah. the church scene at the end when Romeo sees Juliet. So for the last time. Um, but yeah, I, let's leave it on the Casey note. I think so. Neon crosses and all. Thanks again for listening to our podcast. If you like what you've heard, you can check out our other episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Audible, wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. The best way to stay up to date on our latest episodes is to subscribe to our podcast. And while you're hitting that subscribe button, maybe think about leaving us a rating and review. Another great way that you can support us is supporting us via our Patreon page. We just started our Patreon page. Um, it's a great place to subscribe to our extra content. It costs $5 a month. And we actually have an option for you to preview the goods that we'll be giving you there. We just released a newsletter and we're really excited for you to check it out. In addition to our monthly newsletter, we will also be sharing a monthly bonus episode. So we'll also share some other cool bonus content. We're just excited for you to check it out. Um, and it's at Old Millennials Pod. So definitely go and subscribe if you're interested. Additionally, we are on social media. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at the Old Millennials Pod. And finally, you can find us individually on Twitter. I am at Emily A. Beijing. And I'm at Marg Shiro. And until next time, we say bye-bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.